Good morning, Covenant Church. Welcome again to uh, Church Online. Very excited to continue our Kingdom of Heaven series. Uh, my name is Nick Gillespie. I'm the Community Life Pastor for Covenant Church. Um, if you've been tracking with us over the last couple weeks, you know that we've been kind of unpacking this this concept of the Kingdom of Heaven, which is more than just a concept, it's a reality. That when Jesus came onto earth, he came bringing a, ke- a kingdom with him. He came to establish his rule and reign that starts here and now and will be fulfilled when he comes back again. And so I want to do kind of a really quick uh, recap of the last couple of weeks. I mean, if you're anything like me, I mean, I can barely remember yesterday, let alone like last week and what we talked about last week. But the very first week of this series, we talked about how when we see Christ, his miracles, his deeds, namely his resurrection, that that, that points to us his identity, that, that he, is, he is the Son of Man, the one who came down to establish his kingdom. And because he is a king, we know, we know that his kingdom has come. We know that his rule and his reign has begun. Last week we took a look at, well, how is it that we enter into this kingdom? And it's, it's namely through our ears that we hear the truth of the gospel, we hear the message of who Jesus is, and it's through hearing that belief comes. Belief begins to spring within our hearts and that we respond in repentance. And actually hearing isn't just our gateway into the kingdom, it's actually how we navigate the kingdom life, that we continually tune our ears into hearing the voice of our Savior Jesus. Well, this week we take a look at the evidences of the kingdom in our own life. How is it that we know that we're actually living out this kingdom? What is it that we can look at with the things that we do to know that it is that we're living out within this kingdom? And so we kind of take a look at obedience in our, in our hands and how we make sense of these things when it comes to living within this kingdom in the here and the now. And this morning what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at, we're going to jump right into the scripture, we're going to take a look at, at uh, kind of Two different, char- two different people, two different stories in the Gospel of Luke. And they're two rich guys. Luke in his Gospel uh, in chapter 18 and then in chapter 19 shares two different stories of two different men who had a lot of wealth. And what they do with their wealth kind of really tips our hat to understanding the evidence of the kingdom life either blooming or not blooming within these guys' hearts. And as we take a look at these, we're going to kind of try to observe What is the difference between these two men? And what is Luke, what is Jesus trying to tell us about the nature of of salvation, saving faith, when it comes to our actions, our behavior? So in Luke 18, if you turn your Bibles uh, there this morning, um, it probably tells you at the beginning of kind of this section uh, within uh, the chapter of 18, it's typically called the rich young ruler or the rich ruler. And so there's this young guy who's fairly wealthy that comes to Jesus and he asks like the right question. Like if you're going to approach God, you're going to ask him a question. This is a pretty good question to ask. He says, hey, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So he's coming to the expert. He's coming to Jesus and saying, hey, how is it that I enter into this eternal salvation? What do I have to do? And Jesus says to him, well, first, hey, how, you know, why do you call me good teacher? No one is good but God. But then he says, well, hey, do everything that it says in the law and the prophets. Basically meaning everything in the Old Testament, follow what is taught in there and you'll be okay. To which he responds to Jesus, I'm doing that. I'm doing, I've got my bases covered. I've kept all of these things from my youth. 
To which Jesus then responds and says this. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Now the disciples are overhearing this conversation, and and they become perplexed. But what is the bar for eternal life? I mean, this guy is doing everything in the law and the prophets. And now Jesus ups ante and says, hey, go and sell everything that you have. And then you'll have treasure in heaven. And you'll have eternal life. Come and follow me. And the disciples are beside themselves. Who is it that can actually enter the kingdom of heaven? This bar is way too high. This bar is way too high. And typically within the evangelical world, we find different ways of trying to explain away. Well, you don't have to do all of this. You don't have to do all these things in order to gain salvation. And yet, Jesus doesn't let the tension up. He says, no, it is when God penetrates your heart that salvation happens. He goes on to say that to uh, the disciples, that, that God begins to move in people's lives. Well, then the very next chapter, Luke picks up on another, another story, encounter of Jesus with another wealthy man. This guy's name is Zacchaeus. It's in chapter 19. Zacchaeus is a tax collector. I mean, in those days, tax collectors were not of, uh, of good repute. I mean, they're not the type of person that you want to leave your children with. I mean, kind of similar more to like a mafia type of figure. I mean, tax collectors use their power and their position to exploit people, to steal their wealth or even have them thrown in jail unjustly. So this is a key his reputation. This is the life that he lived and he gained a lot of wealth by exploiting other people. Well, Zacchaeus hears that Jesus is coming into town. He had heard reports of what Jesus had done, the miracles he had performed, the teachings that he had had. And Zacchaeus became very interested in wanting to see this Christ. And so, you know, as Jesus is entering into the town, it's almost like a parade. People are kind of lined up alongside the streets. And Zacchaeus is a short guy. He's got short man's complex. I mean, we don't know how tall he is. 4'11", 5'1", 5'5", I don't know. But he can't see over the crowds. You know, he's trying to peer, he's trying to jump over in order to get a look at the parade coming, and he can't see. And so he gets, goes to a nearby tree, he climbs up into the tree, and he hangs over the road in order to get a, a, a view of Jesus walking in. And as Jesus walks through this road, he looks up and sees Zacchaeus, and he says, Zacchaeus, come down. And Zacchaeus climbs down the tree, and Jesus says to Zacchaeus, hey, I want to come to your house tonight and dine with you. Now get this, I mean, this man knows what he's like. He knows what his reputation is. There's no way that a holy man, a holy man wants to come into his home to spend time with him. And yet Jesus says, hey, I want to come and dine with you tonight. Zacchaeus has Jesus over. And this is how Jesus, uh, Zacchaeus responds in verse 8 of chapter 19. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So here we have Zacchaeus 
give away his possessions. Now, I mean, I don't know if any of us are math majors or or accounting type of people in this room. I mean, I'm not, but I probably can understand if I gave half of my wealth away and then anyone I defrauded, I gave them four times what I took from them, I probably don't have a whole lot left. Zacchaeus gives it all away. And to that, Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. And we're left with this tension. Is salvation based on what these guys did? Is salvation based on the fact that they gave it all away? Within our society, within our church world, we have a, <clears throat> a tension between works and grace. Grace, what we typically define as unmerited favor, which is a, probably a really good entry-level definition to uh, grace, but it's not the full extent of it. But we have this tension between works and grace, and we hold them in contrast to one another, like oil and water, or Ohio State and Michigan, or like the rapper Eminem, or anyone else in the world, that they are fighting and at war with one another in regards to how we understand our theology. Some of us maybe even even heard it said something like this. The author of, of James, the Apostle James, when he writes in the New Testament, talks that, hey, faith without works is dead, but then Paul tells us that we are justified by faith alone. And people are like, man, see, Paul and James are teaching different things. And so we're brought into this dilemma, this perceived dilemma that works are contrasted with grace. And if you want to have true grace, true justification by grace alone, then you must discount or not look at works at all. But that really is just a, that's only our dilemma in our Western world because we have adopted this cheap grace theology within the church. That somehow salvation costs us nothing. One, salvation costs Jesus everything. He bought our salvation on the cross But when we enter into that saving faith, it doesn't mean that it's completely free. It does cost us something. But what? What does it cost us? And how is it that we understand what it is that we give in order to inherit or gain eternal life? We'll start with this as kind of like maybe a big idea for this morning. Salvation occurs. Salvation occurs when your heart is gripped by and surrendered to the king. Salvation occurs when your heart is gripped by and surrendered to the king. We see this in Zacchaeus' life in this narrative, this story. He was gripped by the person of Christ, and he surrendered to him. And the outflow of that was the releasing of what he had in this life. Last night, Al and I were visiting with some friends, uh, just kind of hanging out as couples, as families, and stuff like that, and we were talking with our friends. We are just kind of talking about our kind of COVID educational experience, right? What was it like to educate your kids during COVID and homeschool and all that kind of stuff? And uh, the couple we were talking with, both of them work full-time. They've got a middle school son at home. And they're like, man, every day we just had to like berate our son, like get your schoolwork done, get your schoolwork done. And he's got all day to do his schoolwork, and he just wouldn't do his schoolwork. You know, He's not very motivated to get it done. Well, in band, he did none of his assignments for band until the very last day. And the very last day of school, he turned in all of his assignments and got that solid B. I mean, we're not overly surprised by that, right? I mean, we tend to kind of try to do the bare minimum. I mean, I tend to try to, what is the minimum amount that I need to do in order to get what I, I, I want or what I need so that really I can kind of just be free to live the life that I want to live? Let me get that B so then I can be free to do whatever it is that I want to do. And we have this kind of mentality about salvation, 
As if salvation is a matter of what is the bare minimum requirement. That somehow salvation is sort of, we put the bar at some sort of level, we look at that bar and just make sure we do just enough to get over that bar so that we're safe. Then, then we can kind of do whatever we want. But salvation isn't encapsulated in like a prayer. Salvation isn't encapsulated in a label that you give yourself. Salvation isn't encapsulated in like your family of origin. Well, my, my parents are Christians, therefore I'm a Christian. Salvation isn't encapsulated in some sort of vague hope. Well, God is good, and if he's good, then I'll be all right in the end. Salvation isn't a feeling. I feel like I'm a pretty good person. I probably make the grade. That's not what salvation is namely about. I was raised in and discipled in a very evangelistic ministry. And so quite often I would go and I would uh, share the good news of Jesus with others. And I would try to like lead them to this point of like, hey, do you want to invite Christ into your life? Do you want this eternal life? And when people said yes, I would say, well, hey, pray this prayer. Pray this sinner's prayer. And then Jesus will come into your life. But here's the thing. I've noticed in, in doing that type of ministry for over a decade, some people prayed the prayer and the life radically changed. They were transformed. They never lived the same again. Some people prayed that same prayer and nothing changed. They lived the very same way that they always did. I met some people that I shared the good news with that never prayed that prayer, but their life radically changed and began to look much more like the kingdom life that Jesus teaches. What I began to realize is that it's not just about praying this prayer, that salvation is more than that. Salvation is not separate from our lifestyle. Salvation is not somehow detached from our lifestyle. It's not like a country club membership. You know, to get into a country club, it's like the kingdom of heaven is like a country club, and the price is way too high. Jesus paid that price because we don't have it in our pockets in order to pay whatever that expense is for us to enter into that country club. And so Jesus paid it, and then we get our membership card, and we can kind of access the uh, country club when we want, when it's convenient for us. Yeah, I've got the card, and so I'm good. When I die, you know, I know that I'll enter that country club. And, and really, I really kind of want to do what I wanted to do in my own life, but my eternity is, is secured for myself. And those that are really serious about their faith, those that are really serious about Jesus, they probably access the benefits of that country club here and now. But that's sort of optional. That's kind of like a tag-on. That's like an add-on. George MacDonald says this, to hold to a doctrine or an opinion with the intellect alone is not to believe it. A man or woman's real belief is that which they live by. A man or woman's real belief is that which they live by. Real belief, real saving faith is that which we live by. That salvation ought to permeate the things that I do, the life that I live. There's this show that uh, my wife watches um, on Netflix. I think it's on Netflix. It's called Mary at First Sight. Now, I don't watch this show, but I have seen a couple episodes with her in support. Uh, so it's married at first sight. Here's kind of the premise of the, the TV show is that couples meet each other on their wedding day and then get married. I mean, it's like kind of crazy. And so this husband's never seen his wife. She comes out the doors and walks down the aisle and that's the first time he's laying eyes on the woman he's about ready to marry. 
And so these couples fill out like, you know, the forms, they go through the interview processes, or they're interviewed by like counselors and psychologists, and they try to match these couples up. They're trying to find like these couples who are going to like make marriage work from like day one, even though they have no relationship with one another. And there was this particular uh, couple that was on this previous season's um, uh, uh, episode of this uh, pre- previous season that uh, just came out. It's, it's one of the guys is like this European basketball player. Well, he's an American, but he plays uh, professional basketball in Europe. And he's just used to living a very bachelor lifestyle. I mean, he travels all over the place. He gets paid pretty well. Uh, and he just lives like a, as an athlete, very independent. But something's missing in his life, and he feels like marriage is missing from his life. And so he applies to go on to this show in order to, to gain a wife. And, you know, and then there's this woman who's coming in, and she too like, wants to be married. She wants a companionship and all that kind of stuff. And when they get married, there's real tension because her expectations and his expectations of what it means to be married are very different. I mean, she's looking to build a life together. Like that we live together and we build a home together and we go out on the weekends together and we do life together. We cook dinner together and we eat together, all that kind of stuff. But this guy still wants to live a very bachelor life. He still wants to go out with his friends and stay out till three or four in the morning. He wants to like spend the night at his friend's house without even calling his wife and letting, him know, letting her know that he won't be home that night. Some of the ladies are hearing this like, uh-uh, no man ain't doing that. Because that's not what it means to be married. Being married isn't just sort of having a companion and then just kind of doing then whatever you want to do. Your whole life changes when you get married. You take up the lifestyle. When you interview this guy, like they did some interviews, you know, as the show kind of goes on, they have to decide whether or not like they're going to be like really, really, truly committed to this marriage. And they kind of ask him, hey, are you in this thing? And he's like, yeah. He's like, I'm in this thing. I think marriage is the thing that's like missing from my life. It's really nice having companionship companionship like she's there like when uh she's available to me when i need her and when i want her and he just didn't get it he was living like a bachelor and marriage was sort of this person that he could access when he wanted at his own convenience and sometimes we imagine maybe salvation is like that or god is like that that god just sort of waits in the wings and when we want him we can access him but that's not it at all and if you just look at the things that you do if you're looking at just the things that you do as if those are the things that justify salvation, or salvation is just a minimal amount, then, then you're really missing the whole point of it. Salvation is not. Salvation is not the adaptation of your behavior. It's not the precision of your works, but it's a renovation of the heart. Salvation is a renovation of your heart. It's an internal heart transformation. Yeah, we look at the works of our life and that evidences the kingdom of heaven type of life, like what happen, has happened in our heart. But it's not namely about like what we do. That's not the measure of our salvation. It stems from the heart. The Son of Man said, Jesus said that he came to seek and save the lost. How was it that Zacchaeus was lost? How is it that this rich young ruler was lost? Well, both of them were living with themselves uh, at the head, seated on the throne of their life. Both of them lived for themselves. Both of them ruled their own life, made their own decisions, went about life as independent, autonomous agents. And the Son of Man came to rescue, to save them from the, the enslavement 
of living for the rule of themselves. John Piper says this. He says, The basic satisfaction of the work's orientation is the savor of being an, uh, of being an assertive, autonomous, and if possible, triumphant self. That the satisfaction of the self is in order for a person to be assertive, to be autonomous, and hopefully to have triumph for oneself. Yeah, we want to make sure that we have salvation. We want to make sure that we've checked the right boxes just so that we can then live for ourselves. When I look at just the rule, when I look at just the works, then I can check those boxes off and still hold God in arm's length. I can Heisman God and obey the commands. That's what the rich young ruler wanted to do. Jesus, I've checked these boxes. What other boxes am I missing? Well, I'll check those boxes. And the whole time, he wanted to check these boxes so that he could still rule over his own life. But he missed it. Because salvation is about us being gripped by the true king. And that king taking his rightful place on the throne of our heart. That king finding his right place ruling in our hearts. And my works flow from that. Let's take a look at another story in the Bible that I think helps sort of illustrate this rulership at a heart level. Jesus is, uh, it's in Matthew 8, Jesus is out uh, on the sea with his disciples and uh, a squall, a storm kind of kicks up and all of a sudden like the boat that they're in, I mean there's 12 disciples plus Jesus and the boat isn't huge, I mean it's not like a giant cruise ship, you know, tanker. You know, it's much smaller than it's a fishing boat. And so they're out in this storm, it kicks up, and the disciples begin to fear for their lives. They're afraid that their boat is going to be capsized and they're going to die. Now you've got to understand, a good number of these disciples, I mean, they grew up on the waters. I mean, they, their dads are fishermen, their grandfathers are fishermen. They grew up on the water, and they were accustomed to being in tumult, tumultuous uh, weather conditions. And yet, this is so bad that they are just sort of just kind of engulfed by their own fear, their own fear of losing their life in the storm. And so what happens is that they come, it says here in verse 24, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swept uh, by the waves, but Jesus was asleep. And they went and they woke Jesus saying, save us, Lord, we're perishing. And Jesus said to them, why are you afraid? O you of little faith. And he rose up, he rebuked the, uh, the sea, the winds on the sea, and they are calmed, and they marveled at him. Jesus rebukes them. You of little faith. Now, if we're giving kind of a test here of Christian 101, if your friend comes to you and says, hey, I'm overwhelmed. I, I'm struggling in my life. I don't have the means to overcome this obstacle in my life, what should I do? You would say, go to Jesus. You say, go to Jesus. He'll take care of you. The disciples did that, right? They did the right thing. They did what they should do. They're overcome by fear of this storm. They're doing everything within their power to save themselves. It wasn't working. They finally throw themselves at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus says, oh, you of little faith. What Jesus is saying is, is that Jesus was not ruling over their heart. 
He calls them little faith because, yeah, they had enough faith to cry out to Jesus when they had exhausted their own efforts, but they didn't have enough faith to rest. They didn't have enough faith to rest in his kingship. They didn't have enough faith to trust who he was, that he would take care of them. It's not exactly about what we do and don't do. It's a matter of the, the posture and what's going on inside of us that tells us who's on the throne of our life, who is in control. Our works, the things that we do, flow from that which is enthroned on our heart. And those of us who live faithfully, kingdom-oriented lives, who obey the king, will our works flow from a heart that has placed Christ at the center of our life, in his proper place. When Jesus is enthroned in our life, then we are able to rest in him, in the works of our hands, the works of our hands are evidenced of that rest. Why was it that Zacchaeus could let go of his wealth? Jesus had taken his place. Zacchaeus no longer had to, had to rule for his own self. He no longer had to take care of his own self. Jesus would do that. He now could release, release what he had in this life, release himself from that burden, and then do the works of the Lord. He could make restitution for the wrong that he had done. And he could give his wealth to the poor. Zacchaeus was free to do the works because Christ had taken his proper place. John 14, 23 says this. This is Jesus speaking. Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. And my father will love him and he will come to him and make his home in him. We're not saved by our works. We're not justified by our works. But, but our works are baked into genuine faith. What we do is baked into a relationship. Just like marriage transforms us, our lifestyle transforms us when we're married. I mean, when we enter into a, a, a lordship relationship with Jesus, our lives are, are transformed and become different based on that relationship. If we love him, we'll do his works. And as we do his works, his kingdom, his rule, his love takes a greater and deeper, more intimate place in my life and my heart. When Jesus is on the throne, then we are free to experience all God can do. When Jesus is on the throne of your life, you are then freed, released from serving yourself to serving him, and you are free to experience all that God can can do in you and wants to do in you and through you. Who is sitting on the throne of your life? 2020 has been chaotic. I mean, there's tons of memes that go on. I mean, you don't, you know, you can jump on Facebook or any news outlet and you just see the chaos swirling around. I bet for every single one of us, it has been a test of who's Lord of our life. What rules? Is it anxiety? Is our anxiousness what rules our hearts? Is it bitterness? Is it bitterness at the seat of our heart? Is that, is that what's flowing from our heart? Is it vengeance? Is it a desire for, for, for justice? Is it a desire for control? What is it that we're reaching out for? Is it apathy? Is it everything is so crazy, I can't handle it, I can't manage it, well, I'll just sort of kind of 
become apathy. I'll let apathy rule in my life, in my heart. Is it illicit fantasy? Escapism? Is that what rules in my life? Is that what is in my heart? My life, the choices that I make are evidences to point to my heart to say what is actually enthroned. And when we see those things, when I realize when I realize that what's at my heart is myself, that I've been serving myself and living my, for myself, and I've been trying to self-protect or self-preserve, I repent of that. I repent of that. Lord Jesus, I went to that well again. I served myself again. I sought these outlets again. Jesus, forgive me. I don't want these things to rule my life. I want you to rule my life. Would you take your proper place again in my heart? When we do that, then the kingdom works can flow from our life. The difference between the rich young ruler and Zacchaeus was not so much on what they did. It was who they were allowing to rule their heart. I think Zacchaeus got a name in this passage where this other guy is just a rich young ruler because Zacchaeus entered into an intimate relationship with Jesus. He was known by his heavenly father and the works of his heavenly father then flowed from his life. So who is at the center of your life? That's my ending question. Who's at the center of your life? As you consider these scriptures, as you consider how the Lord might be speaking to you, how is it that Jesus might be challenging the ways you might be serving yourself? How is it that Jesus is saying, let go of that, stop serving that, that you can then serve me? I think that the works of him, forgiveness and faith and generosity and unity and peace, he wants these things to flow from you. But they flow from you when you surrender to him. Let me close this in prayer. Jesus, I, I confess. I mean, every day is an opportunity for me to find ways to serve myself. There's ways in which I justify and I detach myself from the salvation that you've brought to me through your son, Jesus. I give myself permission to serve myself saying, I'm okay. I've got that country club pass. But Jesus, you have bought me, you've bought us into an intimate relationship with you. And tied up with that is our life. Lord, would you help us see and identify that which we've allowed to become enthroned in our life that is not you? Lord, we repent of that. We confess that. We ask that you take your proper place on the throne of our hearts. And that from there, Lord, your peace would rule over us. And that we would be free, free from the slavery of this world, free from the slavery of sin in our flesh, that the works of Christ would flow from our hands and from our lips. We want to be your people. Would the kingdom of life flow from us? We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.